Welcome to the Whamacast. I'm Mary Kennedy, your host and the director of the Wingate Museum of Art. Thank you for joining us today as we visit with the amazing artist Delita Martin. Delita was born in Conroe, Texas and earned her BFA in drawing from Texas Southern University and her MFA in printmaking from Purdue University. She was formerly a member of the visual arts faculty at the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, but left with the support of her husband to create her own studio. Black Box Press Studio and create art full-time. She lives and works in Huffman, Texas, near Houston, in a studio that can only be described as a printmaker's dream. Her work has been shown in the Havana Biennial and Art Basel, Miami, and it is found in the permanent collections of the Minneapolis Institute of Art, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, Studio Museum of Harlem, and the Georgetown University Art Collection, among others. Her international schedule of activity has increased, and we are so lucky to have her with us this week for a residency. Thank you, Delita, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Good. I'm going to jump right in, okay? Sounds great. Okay. So you grew up in a family of nine children, and I grew up in a family of seven children, although I'm one of the older children and you're one of the younger. But unlike you, we did not have much art or creativity in our family. There is a quote by you that reads, Everybody in my family made art. We would paint, we would draw, we were storytellers. I was whining because I wanted to go to art school, and I didn't realize I grew up in an art school. Quilters, storytellers, writers, and this was something that we did every single day. We just woke up and did it. Was that as great as it sounds? It really was. Um, You know, when, when you become an adult and you look back at your childhood, and, you know, of course, I'm sure I griped a lot back then, but now it was it was absolutely incredible and amazing. And I don't think I'd be where I am today without that type of support and exposure. It was wonderful. Um, we created all the time. You know, someone was making something, um, constantly hearing stories about the family, just the oral history that was told. And, you know, just people, you know, I would draw something and my family would just ooh and ah all over it and treasure it. So it was it was really good. It was very nurturing. So how did your family instill those values? My father went to Texas Southern University and he studied with John Biggers. And my mother, she did not study art formally, but we would go um, antiquing or go to garage sales. And no matter what she got, she would adorn it with something. She was always painting it or, um, you know, taking jewels and, and putting jewels all over chests and things like that. So it was just natural for us to be creative. And so I think just, you know, my mom would introduce me as her baby because I was the youngest of all the kids. And she would say, this is my baby daughter, Delita, and she's an artist. So I, you know, at five, I thought legitimately I was an artist. That sounds fantastic. So when you were a child, you went to visit John Biggers, who was an internationally renowned artist, um, really an amazing artist um, to talk about becoming an artist. So. Your dad is the one that got you in to meet with him. Can you tell us about what that was like? It was incredible. Um, It was incredible and frustrating at the same time because I was a 12-year-old little girl who knew who John Biggers was and understood how important he was through my love for art. 
And it was like, who can I tell about this experience? No one else my age would understand, you know, me ooing and eyeing over this amazing artist, over this beautiful work. But um, it really touched my heart. He looked at my work and he told me the only thing that really stuck with me was he said, young lady, never miss an opportunity to uplift your people through your work. And that's something that I take it into the studio exactly like with him. me every single day. Mm-hmm. And um, just, you know, he would periodically come through the art department. So I knew I was going to go to Texas Southern University. I was going to become an artist. I was going to study with Dr. Biggers and I missed him, missed studying with him. But, you know, his legacy, you know, with my father, his legacy with the art department, I felt like I still was surrounded by the spirit that he had um you know, that he had instilled in that department. So it was wonderful. The Houston Museum of Fine Arts did that fantastic retrospective exhibition of his work. And I was so happy to see that and the beautiful catalog. I was there. Good for you. Good <laughs> for you. There. Yeah. Yeah. What a terrific show. So you work in a variety of media, but you are best known as a printmaker. Yes. Um, so what made you want to be a printmaker? So um, I, I majored in drawing in undergrad and I it was a Saturday morning. I went to the art department to pick up my sketch pad that I had left over the weekend and I tipped in and we had a printmaking department, but we never had enough students to make the class. So I was never privileged to take a class in undergraduate school. So I heard some people in the room. It was John Biggers. Harvey Johnson, my professor, his mentee, and uh, Charles Kreiner, who is also a Houston-based printmaker, and Early Hutnall, a photographer. And when I walked in the room, uh, they were reopening an edition that Dr. Biggers had printed in, I want to say it was like 1970, 1967 or 1970. And um, I watched them pull this lithograph, and it was like a magical dance that they were doing. Harvey was wiping the stone. Uh, Kreiner was rolling the stone up. Dr. Biggers was sitting at the table uh, signing and Early was photographing. And I just very quietly sat in the corner and I said to myself, I want to do this. And, you know, it's like all these chemicals and acids on the table. And I'm like, how do you get this beautiful, just sensitive, delicate drawing with all these chemicals. It's like, I have got to figure this out. And so I just kind of tucked it in the back of my mind and I graduated from undergrad and decided I wanted to go to graduate school a few years later. And I told my husband, I was like, I want to go to graduate school. And he's like, what are you going to go for? I was like printmaking. And I had no experience whatsoever. So it was, it was very interesting to say the least. Yeah. Not a lot of people choose their MFA based on something that they had never tried before. But you have a lot of curiosity. You're interested, you know, even within printmaking, you know, you're interested in learning different skills, different techniques. So um, do you think that keeps your work fresh? Yes. um, What I've discovered is each medium does something different for me. So printmaking is that excitement that I enjoy about art. Um, the mystery of what's going to happen, because you never know what you're going to get with printmaking, you know, and there's a hundred and one ways to do one process. And I love that about printmaking. But drawing is that thing that centers me. You know, if I feel kind of off balance, I always go to drawing. Painting is that thing that relaxes me. So each one fills a different need for me. And so 
when I finally decided to go into the studio full time, it just made sense to bring them all together. Mm -hmm. The um, monoprints that are over at the museum right now, you know, they, they are prints, but they are just so much more. I'm sure you've had lots of questions from people asking how is this a print? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and and I love those conversations because I, you know, it's like, well, is this a painting? I'm like, yeah. Well, is it a print? Well, of course it is. And so it's so many different things and it can be whatever I think the viewer needs it to be as it is for me. So whatever I need at that moment, um, I put that into the work. If I can't draw it, I paint it. If I can't paint it, I print it. And so um, I feel like everybody is able to come and experience it on their own terms. So your maternal grandmother, Texana, am I saying her name correctly? Yes. Texana Williams played a really significant role in your life. As I understand it, you shared a room with her until you were 13. Yes. Can you describe <laughs> her and how she influenced your work? Well, we spent every single day together, um, particularly before I started school. You know, we'd get up in the morning, we'd have our routine and she was always telling me stories. Um, she was a gardener, so I had my little patch of garden next to hers. Um, she would cook and I would have my little cooking session over here where I'm mixing up things. So it was she shared a lot of knowledge with me. And um, I remember she would keep these mason jars and Folgers coffee cans and she would have all sorts of things. And she kept all of our clothing from when we were little. We would turn those into quilts. But she had a story for everything. And I realized, you know, now that I'm older, I understand it as a different language, as a visual language. And she was teaching me to be a storyteller. She was she was I feel like she was passing that tradition on to me, but I had to find my voice and I found my voice through art. You know, uh, when I read that about you, you know, I, my grandmother um she had all kinds of these little objects that she saved, you know, like she would save in a baby food jar <laughs> sand from like if she'd been to a beach somewhere or dirt, mm -hmm. you know, and it was like her own little museum of things that had no value to anyone else. But she would meticulously go through and talk about these things with yeah. me and tell me the history or the person that gave it to her or why it had family significance. And in reading about your own experience, I thought about how my grandmother was trying to tell the story of our family and our history to me through these what anyone else would think were completely insignificant objects. But I'm so glad she did mm -hmm. because I felt like I learned about my family in a way that I never would have understood, like through genealogy or something like that. Absolutely. And I even today, I surround myself with objects. You know, I find these interesting things and, you know, I go to my mom's house and I'll, I would keep things. And my mom's like, why are you taking that? And I'm like, because I just want to keep it, you know. And so I surround myself with objects now and it, they're my visual vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, they're and they're certainly evident in your work, too. There's the presence of so many mason jars, and yes. um, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I do really love the Conjure series, and I think it's the strongest work that you've done to date. I really do. It To me, and looking over your work historically, it seems that so much comes together in this series, um, and it's extremely powerful. Um, could you describe your process as you begin a new series like this? Because I think it's really unusual the way you go about doing this, and maybe not anyone would ever expect this? 
Well, it was really interesting. I think the pandemic, we have the pandemic to kind of thank for that. Um, it didn't really change my practice, but I think it was a t- uh, definitely a time that was very introspective for me to just sit down and just really, really think. And I realized with this particular body of work that with the women that I was meeting and I was interacting with and the times that we were going through, that something very magical was happening. We were conjuring these relationships and we were conjuring um, these very spiritual moments. And I wanted to figure out how do I bring that to life? How do I talk about, you know, these the spiritual side of who we are? Because it was really a time when the women that I talked to, the women that I met, we'd never we still haven't met a lot of us. We still have not been together in person, but we talk all the time and I feel like I've known them forever. And before I started the process, I would ask them if they were interested in modeling for me. And I would ask them particular questions, you know, what is your journey? What spiritual journey? I would tell them about my spiritual journey and it just opened up so much and we were able to create this bond. And I believe that you can't, draw someone or create portraiture without having an intimate relationship because it's an intimate process. And so um, I, for this particular work, we did Zoom or we did um, IG chat and um, FaceTime and I screenshot them or I asked them to send me, you know, just send me a screenshot on the phone. And it really wasn't important that, you know, the lighting wasn't important. It didn't have to be, I wanted them to be their natural selves. And so that was really important. Um, So once I got that information, I would sit with it for a while. And so I didn't immediately start on the work per se. I would sit with the portraits for a while. I would have intimate conversation after intimate conversation. So no one really knew when I was going to be working on their portrait or even if their portrait would appear in this series. So I wanted to keep it as intuitive and as natural as possible. I thought I read also that there are times when people would sit for you and you knew they were really interesting people, but somehow the the sitting for the portrait made them behave in ways that were more formal or yes. unnatural. And so you would go back and look at social media and yes. find... So what I did was... Um, It started off when I would ask, you know, I was like, hey, I would like for you to be in this plate series that I'm working on. And they would send me photographs, but they would be so filtered. And it says so much about society today, which was really I found disheartening. It was really sad to me because these are such beautiful, vibrant women. And then I said, well, come into the studio and sit for me. So this was prior to the pandemic. And they would come in and I would take a picture and they said, wait, let me see, let me see. And no, let's do another one. Let's do another. So I stopped asking and we would, I would say, Hey, let's go hang out. And they would have no idea what I was doing. And I just snap a picture and I've just acted as if we were just hanging out and I would take pictures or I would go through their social media and I would choose something that I felt like was authentically them because I've never been interested in portraiture as a um, hyper-realist artist. You know, I think those artists are wonderful and the work that they do is incredible. But I was personally interested in capturing their spirit. I wanted that twinkle in your eye that no one else had. I wanted that just that slight tilt of your head. Those were the intimate moments that I was that I'm interested in in my portraits. Yeah, it really comes through. 
I read that for you, this series is about both your identity and the identity of African-American women. Yes. Um, I think about other black women artists who have come before you. Carrie Mae Weems, Betty Saar, Howard Dina Pindell, mm -hmm. Elizabeth Catlett, Faith Ringgold, Emma Amos, Lorna Simpson, all of whom created their own works around the identity of African-American women. Yet there's something uniquely powerful about the works in Conjure and how these women are represented. Could you talk a bit about the influence of these predecessors as well as your departure from, from their work? Yes. Um, every single person that you <laughs> named were women that I look up to to this day. I've studied their work. Um, I met Elizabeth Catlett, um, Faith Ringel. I've met her on several occasions. And um, it was just something so wonderful and amazing that these women had the audacity to see the beauty in themselves and the beauty in other women. And that's something that I very much wanted to be a part of. And I wanted to, you know, society, you know, you look at magazines, you look at media and other people are telling our story. And I felt that it was important as an artist for me to tell our story from my perspective, from my perspective as a black woman, as a mother, you know, as a sister, as an aunt, um, to be able to have this intimate relationship with these women and show them in show them who they are spiritually, to show the world who they are spiritually. And so that was um, that's what I've tried to do in the work. I think it's interesting the way. So many of the figures in the work look out directly at the audience and engage in a way that, um, it, it to me it it is fascinating because it is as though they want to engage with the visitors. Um, yes. And I know these works are based on a spiritual level as well, but just um, technically they're spectacular. I mean, as monoprints. Uh, there is so much to look at in the work in person. Um, but you're also so engaged. I, it's When I'm in that room, I feel like I'm in kind of a sacred space with all of those. And we did the installation the way we did so that all of those women could talk to one another in mm -hmm. that space. And it's just exceedingly powerful. It's really amazing. Thank you. It was really important. I mean, size is definitely um, play a part in the work. You know, you're talking about women who have historically been marginalized. You talk about women who are not, um, you go into any museum collection, really. And, you know, you may find one or two, but not so much as, you know, these black women that have such a strong presence. And so I wanted to create works that challenged the viewer, challenged how the viewer sees the women. They're very confrontational in the sense that, their presence will be seen. Their presence will be known. Um, they engage the viewer in eye contact. So you have to question, am I the viewer or am I being viewed? And that was intentional. Mm -hmm. Both. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very interested in your concept of the veilscape, which yes. I believe you define as a spiritual footprint we leave in spaces wherever we go. Mm -hmm. I also think about what is described as the thin veil between life here on earth and beyond. Um, could you share a bit more about this and how it is represented in the works in the exhibition? Yes. So um, I wanted to talk about spirituality. And I think that, um, you know, we go into places all the time, like you walk into a room 
and you get this overwhelming emotion or feeling. And I think it's because of the fingerprint that's left in that space from the people who have come before. And I think our ancestors are constant, you know, this is all over the place, but I don't think we grow up to, I think children recognize it very easily, but as adults, we're trained not to, we're, we eventually um, sit that side of, of who we are aside. So I wanted to figure out as the, as the artist, I think it's my responsibility to make the intangible tangible, to make the unseen seen. So I had to question, how would I do this? What in my mind, how do I view the veilscape or this space between the waking world and the spirit world? And for me, it's color, it's pattern, it's texture. And it's all these things working together. There's this push and pull that happens with the colors and the textures and the patterns and how they break up and how they marry together. And that's life. That's just life in general. And so once the figure um, sits in this space, how do they interact in that space? So you see the pattern coming through the skin. There's this push and pull that takes place with um, how the pattern shows through how the pattern recedes. And that talks about how we marry into the space. And also, if you look at the faces of the women, one instance, you're looking at a portrait and the next instance, you're looking as a mask. And for me, the mask can be literal in the work or it can be symbolic in the work, but it references that, um, that item, that conjure item that we use to evoke change, to evoke transition. It's that item that we use to, to help us cast. So in the works, am I understanding correctly that the, the white circles or the circles that are present, are those what represent the veilscape? The patterned areas. So what I, okay. what I actually done is um, with this work, I did something very different in that I switched the spaces. Sometimes the veilscape is the complete, you know, background. There's a complete pattern. And then there's other times when there's circular spaces or, you know, um, organic shapes where the pattern comes through. So you get a peek into the veilscape mm -hmm. or you get a peek into what what I consider the waking world. So you're mm -hmm. transitioning in and out of both of these spaces. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to play with that a little bit and not um, necessarily all the time have it as literal as mm -hmm. I do in some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so we're talking about spirituality too. Uh, and I mentioned that it does feel very much like a sacred space in the gallery when, when you're in there um, surrounded by all of the women. You were raised as a Baptist, mm -hmm. but as you've grown older, your spiritual journey has become more expansive. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit and how it's influenced your work? Yes, um, I was raised a Baptist and, you know, you you're you're taught to, you know, you go to church on Sunday, but in you you don't look at you don't worship other idols. And, you know, we we had the blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus Christ portraits in the house hall. But as I've grown older, you know, I've looked more towards um, African based religion and looked at, you know, a lot of those things that I was taught to stay away from. For example, you know, you're not supposed to um, engage with, um, engage in the spirit world, calling on the spirit world. But, you know, African-based religions, you're, you, 
it's okay to to catch the Holy Ghost, you know, in, in the church, but it's not okay for you to be mounted by a spirit in, let's say, a voodoo culture. And so I found that those things were kind of ironic and I just began to look and, I, and I'm looking more um, at a nature based type faith. So people talk about religion and I'm like, I'm not religious. I, I have a faith. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. a faith based. Um, I think I read that uh, one of the things that was really interesting for you growing up was the way your grandmother, even though she was a practicing Christian, how she incorporated all of these other aspects of spirituality Mm -hmm. into her life and kind of had a more comprehensive spirituality. She read dreams, um, which she taught us to do. Um, She grew herbs and in her garden, flowers and plants in her garden that she used to make medicines for healing. And it's very interesting. Um, I remember having a conversation with my mother and I don't think you, you know, I think she valued what my grandmother did. So she never questioned it. But then when you say, well, you know, you're not supposed to dabble in things of that nature. And I'm like, but that's what grandma did. And she just stopped calling and was like, you know, you're right. That is Mm -hmm. what she did. Mm -hmm. So, um, for me, you know, looking back at, um, the practices that my grandmother had and, you know, teaching us to pay attention to our dreams and teaching us that, you know, the natural world can be used for healing. And, um, you know, those, those are things that I value to this day. Mm Mm-hmm. I know that um, color is very important to you. Choices yes. of color is very important to you and what it represents. And yeah. um, I've just learned that you don't do anything. There's nothing that I put on paper is random. There's right. nothing that you do in the art world that's random. But it's up to you as the artist to stop and have a conversation with yourself and consider why you're doing what you're doing. There's a root there somewhere. And I've just learned over the years to pay attention to that. So what what does blue represent for you? Blue is a very spiritual color for me. It's mm-hmm. it's about peace. It's about serenity. It's about um it's it's that color that takes me to another space, to another place. So even when I'm working in other colors, I rarely use black, if ever. Really I don't. Um, unless it's just black and even black, I, I have a base color, another color that I mix with it to add depth, but I I use indigo blue to -hmm. darken colors. So, um, blue is just the root of, um, everything for me in terms of color. One time I was working on a project with Betty Saar and I had gone to her house. She lived in Topanga Canyon. She probably still lives there. I haven't (laughs) been there in a while, but anyway, I pulled up in this rental car that was this beautiful blue. And she saw it and she's like, that is a mystical car, Mary. That is so important. And I I was really naive at the time, but she was absolutely sure of this. You know, it was amazing. That's the only other artist I've ever heard talk about the power of blue. I, you know, and it's so funny. I didn't realize it until I started looking back at all photographs and I started noticing what I gravitate towards. I gravitate towards blue and I had to really sit down and just really have a conversation with myself and figure out why. And it's just, a, it's spirituality for me. It's a spiritual color. It's that color 
that takes me closer to God. Mm-hmm. You you have a very interesting iconography that you work with. You know the, you know what vessels represent, what birds represent. Mm-hmm. Do you find that that iconography grows over time? Yes. Okay, so it yes, becomes it more absolutely, complex. Yes, it absolutely does, and even the complexity of pairing it with other. Um, with the objects, how they're paired together, how they're positioned, um, all of that plays a part. But what I enjoy the most is that all of these objects, usually domestic in nature, every single person that I can think of, regardless of your race, regardless of your economic background, um, you've had an experience with them. And that's what makes the work universal. It makes the conversation universal. You can come to these works and have a conversation with me. You talked about the jars that your grandmother kept and the stories that she told you. That's where the conversation starts. And that's why the work is important. Mm -hmm. And powerful. So these are really big. These are really big works. I know that (laughs) when we were looking at them, I was like, holy cow, how are we going to get these here? (laughs) But we got to have them. Um, They're massive. and, And I do love that about them. And I do think it speaks to a kind of recognition of these women in a way that, you know, um, uh, hasn't always been possible. Um, It's interesting to me because personally, you're a rather petite person. I saw you fold yourself into the back of my Mini Cooper. (laughs) So um, the uh, and and you've worked big in the past. It's not like this is completely Mm -hmm. unusual, but Talk a little bit about what it's like to work on such a massive scale versus working, you know, here it at Hendrix, we own a couple of pieces of yours that are much smaller. It takes you to a totally different space. You know, I, I liken my studio to being in another universe. When I walk through that door, I am somewhere else. When I walk out, I walk out into reality. And there's an intimacy that happens when you work on works that large because you're covered. You're using every part of your body. You're using your spirit to create. You're using your mind to create. You're using your physical body to create. So you become one with the work. And so I love, I enjoy working that way. I'm covered by the end of the day, I'm covered in ink, paint, charcoal, whatever I'm working on. I'm covered from head to toe. I'm barefoot. I am just intimately involved with these works. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, you have so much going on in the not too distant future. <laughs> yes. And we're, le- we're really so lucky to have you here this week. Can you talk about some of the things that you're looking forward to? Yes. Um, first, well, coming up next, I have uh, Project Grow House, which opens, I believe, uh, March 13th. Um, is the opening day for the 53rd round. So oh I will be gosh. showing there with um, Rue, which is the collective group of women that I show with, um, Ann Johnson, Lovey Olivia, and Rebea Baying. And it's R-O-U-X? Yes. Okay. And um, we've been showing together for years now as a collective, and we're totally supportive of each other in our independent careers as well. Um, and then April 23rd, um, the... Venice Biennial, the Biennale. Um, I will. I have works there. I will be showing during that time. So I'm headed to Venice in April, and uh, shortly after that, over the summer, I will be working in Germany, and um, I'm also working on a project with um, High Point Press in Minnesota. Uh, we just completed a series of prints called Keepsakes, and some. 
just busy, kind of all over the place. So what are the keepsakes about? Keepsakes are actually, so for years, I col- again, I collect things. So I found these beautiful handmade christening gowns and I collected them for years and had no idea what I was going to do with them. So we took the gowns and we created monoprints, um, created these plates with the gowns. And I did lithograph portraits of little girls. And they talk about um, adultification in children and how we don't always, we aren't always able to hold our children sacred. We don't allow them to be children. So I wanted to create a series of works that hold children sacred, hold these little girls sacred. So there's these, um, there's handwork in them. I've stitched on them, stitch patterns on the, on them as well. So they're very beautiful. I think there's seven in the collection total. And how large are they? Um, those are, I think, around 30 by 40. So they're mm-hmm. fairly small mm-hmm. for And me. they're going to be where? Um, they are available at High Point. Okay. Um, so I'm publishing those through High through Point. Through High Point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Have you worked with High Point before? I have not. I've been so excited and so blessed to be working with Cole over the last couple of years. Um, Cole Rogers, who is the director there. Uh, I've worked with him with that project and hopefully we'll be working with him with other projects in the future. Um, and you're also, you were talking the other day about a new printing technique that you're going to be exploring. Yes. Can so talk about that? I am always looking to um, expand my knowledge in printmaking or whatever medium I'm working in. So um, Cole and I will actually be working with um, photolithography. So I'm used to doing traditional lithography, drawing directly on the stone or on the plate, but I have not used the photographic processes. So we're going to work with that and see what happens. Good for you. I like that. That's awesome. (laughs) So you're a really accomplished artist. Um, You're successful by every measure. Um, But we have lots of young artists listening, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. What would be your advice to them starting out, coming out of school My first, um, the first point that I would like to make is I always tell young artists or young aspiring artists, decide what type of artist you want to be and be okay with it. You need to be okay with it. Not mom, not dad, not your teacher. You need to be okay with it because if you're okay with it, you're going to put the time, the energy and the effort into becoming who you want to be. Once you figure that out, um, look at other artists who have careers that you admire, the careers that you want. Research those artists, connect with those artists and see what they have accomplished, what they have done that maybe you can incorporate into your practice or into your goals for yourself. And that can put you on the path to becoming who you want to be. And when you say a type of artist, what do you mean by that? You know, um, are you an artist for art's sake? Um, Are you a community-based artist? Is it about money? You know, are you interested in a fast sale? Um, Are you a museum-based artist? Or, you know, do you want to merchandise your work? Decide where you want your work to be seen and then take the necessary steps to get there. When when students are coming out, do they know that? Do they have a sense of that? I mean, Um, I don't. Think, I, I think they so often are what their professors are. 
want them to be, you know, and it's <laughs> and, hard and, for them to like separate and say. And that's exactly why I suggest finding out who you want to be. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think that they know that. I don't think that they necessarily know to look for that because I did. I had no clue. And I think I don't think I really I knew I wanted to be an artist, but I don't think I really understood what type of artist I wanted to be until graduate school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I figured out, you know, I, I really love exhibitions. I love being in a studio full time. Um, I love teaching in a non-traditional type way. You know, I love when people come to the studio, I will throw you an apron and say, let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like teaching in that way. So um, and then realizing that it's OK, you know. Mm-hmm. You it's taught fun. for a while, right? You yes. didn't stop teaching until 2013. Is yes. that right? Yes. So what was teaching like and um, what did you garner from teaching? Teaching was really good. Um, I enjoyed it during the time that I was teaching, but I really think that I was really meant to be a studio artist mm-hmm. and I was meant to teach in a non-traditional type way, mm-hmm. you know, and that means, you know, having the students come in for a tour or having someone call me up and say, hey, can you walk me through this process? So I'm still always teaching, mm-hmm. um, but I loved working with the students. We we had a really good time and I had to learn to be the type of teacher I was and not the type of teacher that was expected of me. Mm -hmm. So I was that teacher that loved to have fun in the classroom. I loved to joke. I loved to have fun. I loved to experiment. Let's keep it as lively as possible. So that's who I tried to be. I think for, you know, artists that teach, it takes so much time. They have so little time to create their own work. I'm sure you found once you left teaching, the the window of time was just so much wider to work on. I had to learn to uh-huh. be an artist. Uh-huh. I had to learn how to make art my job. You know, I understood getting up in the morning, going into the classroom, you spend a certain number of hours at the university, you come home, you know, you do what you can, and then, you know, you work with your family. But I had to learn to make art my job. I had to figure out what my work schedule looked like. You know, what time do I get in the studio? What time do I leave the studio? What days are administrative days? Um, You know, how do I deal with contracts? I had to learn. There's a business side of art. And um, it's fortunate on one hand and unfortunate on the other hand. But we don't have the luxury of having a map laid out for creatives you know you know you go to school you do your internship you do this you do that it doesn't work like that for us so I think with everyone it's different in your path but the good thing is we can create the world that we want to live in the world Mm -hmm. that we want to exist in as artists so um, I think if you embrace it from that perspective you can do anything do you ever feel like you get stuck all the time really oh yeah And so how do you get out of it? I am always in my creative space because I believe that you're always working. Uh You're always creating in your head. I'm I'm always doing something. So even if I'm not um, physically making a piece of work, I'm in my studio. I'm in my studio at least an hour a day, definitely more than that. But I'm in there. If I'm sweeping the floor, if I'm straightening up, I could just be sitting down having a cup of tea. I'm looking through books. I have to be in my creative space. Mm-hmm. And then it just, you work your way through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like a, a writer's block. Exactly. Yeah. So I know that you also do other things uh, with Black Box Press. 
that's related to the foundation and giving back to others. And sort of let's return back to Dr. Bigger's comments to mm-hmm. you in the beginning and how you've been going about doing that. Yeah, well, the pandemic happened and um, our political climate was very volatile and you know, the violence against people of color and George Floyd happened. And I have a young black man as a son. And as a mother, I worry about him going out into the world. And so we were watching um, George Floyd protests on TV and I was clearly disturbed. And I started talking to my son and he started talking to me. And I think what was incredible about that moment was we were in the studio And I got to understand him and his generation as a young black man, but he got to understand me as a mother and not just someone nagging him to do this, do this, or don't do that. Don't, you know, be careful here. But he really, we got to understand each other on a different level. And so I asked him, you know, my way of working through things is to create art. So I said, well, let's create a piece. You're going to model for me. So he said, yeah. And he helped me with the block and all of that. And we created the work and I shared a story online and posted the image and people were asking if they could purchase it. And I was like, no, it's for him. Hopefully he'll pass it on to our grandkids and tell them about, you know, this time that he and I spent together. And he says, mom, let's, why don't we make prints and sell them. And I'm thinking, okay, this 17 year old, he's trying to get on the hustle. Right. (laughs) But he said, no, let's donate it to a charity. And so we were, I said, well, you have to help me research. So we're researching charities and we couldn't really find um, what we were looking for. And so finally we said, let's create something that we want to see. And so we created Black Box Press Foundation. Um, where we give $5,000 grants to artists. We pick four artists per year and uh, it's an unrestricted grant. And we also partner the artists with other um, organizations or that act as a host venue for their exhibition. So it's a wonderful way for artists to get their voices out there because it's so, um, there were so many powerful things coming out of art during the pandemic. And it's like people were, were really talking about what was happening in the world. And I felt like that was so important. You know, I always say, you know, if you can, you know, art can change hearts and minds and minds can change systems and systems can change lives. And so just taking that approach to it, um, we've been really encouraged. And, you know, as another component, um, I've always wanted to have artists, uh, an artist residency. So I've been inviting artists to come into my space and work. And so I've had two artists, uh, Taniki Award, who are, who's also a printmaker, and um, Chloe Alexander has come in and work. And I'll be inviting others in the future. That's fantastic. Good for you. Yeah, that's awesome. And your son learned an important lesson there, too. He did. He did. Um, And I really I mean, I was so it was such an adult moment for me (laughs) to see him. It was, you know, it's like, wow, he's a young man. And he says, let's donate this to charity. And so we were able to uh, raise money with the prints that I did of him and my niece. And um, it was, you know, we've been able to fund artists and we can't wait to do our next round. Yeah, those prints are amazing. They're really amazing. Well, I want to thank you for being with us today. We have to rush off to another event. Thank you. So we could have stayed here. I could have (laughs) asked you questions all afternoon. 
Um, but I, I do want to say thank you so much for spending time with me today. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together. And this week has been fantastic. And the entire Hendricks campus is grateful to you for spending time here. Thank you again for having me. It's been wonderful. Great. And thanks to our listeners. If you want to learn more about the exhibition Conjure, Delita Martin, please visit our museum or our website at wingatemuseum.org. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for joining Whamacast, produced by the Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College. Our engineer is Megan Stevenson, graphics by Amanda Cheatham, and research support from Rebecca Jolly. Our theme music was written by Hendricks student Cameron Minor and performed by Cameron Minor, Scott Minor, Danielle Kuntz, and Campbell Cook. All rights reserved by Hendricks College. Have a great day.